Your money is a tool to support the causes and people you care about. In this episode, I talk with Tanya Hester about becoming a wallet activist. Learn how to find out what your values are, spend on what matters, and raise your consciousness around how things are made and the impact our purchases have on the environment and other people. The Mental Health and Wealth Show, the Mental Health and Wealth Show, the Mental Health and Wealth Show. Welcome to the Mental Health and Wealth Show podcast. This is your host, Melanie Lockhart. My journey with money and mental health started in 2012 when I was depressed and anxious about my student loan debt. In 2013, I started my blog, Dear Debt, which chronicled my debt payoff journey and changed my life. I later published my book of the same name about how I paid off $81,000 in student loan debt. It was my time blogging that showed me that I wasn't alone in my mental health struggles around money and that my own mental health impacted how I related to money. My mission now is to help others feel less alone and tackle these difficult topics. As a disclaimer, I am not a mental health professional or a financial professional, and all content on the show should not be considered professional medical or financial advice. As a trigger warning, please note that content on the show may include sensitive topics around mental health and suicide. If you are in distress, please get in touch with a professional by texting HOME to 741741. Thank you so much for being here, and if you'd like to support the podcast, please subscribe and review on your favorite podcast platform, and feel free to share episodes on social media and tag me at Melanie Lockhart. I would love to hear from you. This is Melanie Lockhart, host of the Mental Health and Wealth Show. Today, I'm interviewing my friend, Tanya Hester, who's the author of Wallet Activism, How to Use Every Dollar You Spend, Earn, and Save as a Force for Change, and Work Optional, Retire Early, the Non-Penny-Pinching Way. After spending most of her career as a consultant to democratic politics and progressive issue campaigns, and before that as a public radio journalist, Tanya retired early at the age of 38. She documented the process on her award-winning blog, Our Next Life. Super excited to have you here. Thanks so much. I'm, I'm super excited to talk to you. I know. It's been a while. So just FYI, Tanya spoke at the first Lola retreat in 2017 in, in Portland. And, you know, we've been following each other for many years online, has a wonderful blog and community. And I believe you have been called the matriarch of the fire community, which I love that title for you. How do you feel about that title, by the way? <laughs> I wanted to ask you directly. It's funny to be called a matriarch when uh, I don't have kids. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, but, <laughs> but I I mostly love it. I mean, I think it it shows that I've tried to focus on being more inclusive to women and non-binary people and non-white folks in the community. But yeah, you know, I also get annoyed when we put gendered labels on things um, for no reason, you know? <laughs> But but it's a wonderful honor. I mean, obviously, like being called that is is meant as a compliment. And so I definitely take it that way. For sure. Yeah. I think hopefully the intention of the name was to kind of show that in this very popular kind of boys club that there is this woman's voice who is really inspiring others to live the life that they want. So I know that you retired at age 38. I remember that happened like a few years ago and your celebration. It was so exciting. And you know, seeing everything that you have done since and been able to navigate your life. I've just been watching with awe and inspiration and I love it. Oh, thank and you. 
I'm so excited because it's led you to this really critical work with wallet activism. And uh, I want to share with the audience that I was able to get a copy of the book and it was so amazing, like literally so mind boggling and changed the way I thought about so many different things. And I'm in that stage of life where I want to read a book that will make me change my mind about things that will make me think that will add value to my life. And your book delivered in so many ways. So I just wanted to say congratulations first and foremost, because it is an epic book in the personal finance community. Gosh, thank you. That that really means so, so much. Um, yeah, I really appreciate it. I'm so glad it spoke to you. Yeah, everyone should check it out and buy it. So, you know, let's dive right into the interview and, and share more about the book. So, you know, your book is about wallet activism. What does wallet activism mean to you and how can it help people spend on their values? Yeah, you know, it's it's funny because um, am I allowed to swear on this show? Of course, <laughs> yes, please. The original Say whatever the fuck you want. <laughs> <laughs> Great. The original title that we pitched um, when when we took my book proposal to publishers was Spend Like You Give a Shit. And Ooh. there was another book out there that we learned about later called Give a Shit. But I think I'm actually glad that we changed the title because the word spend in the title, I think, gives it too narrow a focus. And so, you know, people, I'm sure, are very um, aware of the phrase, vote with your dollars, or um, I'm sure you've all heard about conscious consumerism or ethical consumerism. And something about those phrases just always rubbed me kind of the wrong way and felt too limited. And as I dug into the research, it really was was clear that it was. So certainly being conscious about the things that you buy is really important. But phrases like conscious consumerism and ethical consumerism still keep us in this mindset of consumerism, that mm -hmm. the goal is always to buy something. And so it's, do we buy this or do we buy this? And that felt like a false choice to me. Oftentimes the best choice might be, maybe we buy neither. Maybe we try to go in with our neighbors on something and share something. Maybe it's renting something that we aren't actually going to use all that often. And more importantly, this is about so much more than just shopping and spending. You know, it's also where we choose to live. It's how we earn a living. It's where we save and invest our money. It's how we give our money away. It's the food that we eat, which we may or may not think of as consumerism. And so, um, to me, really wallet activism is using your financial power in all its forms for the greater good or the collective good, or if if that word good sort of rubs you the wrong way, you can think about it as aligning all the different forms of your financial power with your values to promote the values that you wish to see more of in the world, whether they are environmental or social and human. And I try to make the case in the book that we should be aiming for both. We shouldn't put humans and the environment at opposite ends of the spectrum, but rather think about them together. Um, but yeah, that's not a short answer at all. But as you know, it's not a short book. <laughs> yeah, no, it's great. I, lo yeah. I love the nuance and I love that there are no easy answers. And I think you handled everything that is so difficult with so much grace and compassion yeah. and nuance, which is desperately needed right now. Because yeah, I think everything that you talk about in the book, you know, there are no easy answers. And we live in such a binary world where it's like, this is good, this is bad, you know, where it's like, 
we live in a, a world where in reality, so much of it is gray and we need to add the nuance and the texture and the consideration of so many different things when we're making our decisions. And I really appreciate that extended definition. And I love what you're putting out into the world. And so for someone who they might realize like, I do want to be a wallet activist. I do want to quote, spend on my values. You know, what if they think, I don't even know what my values are. How can I even find that out? And how can I spend money appropriately and vote with my dollars, so to speak, like you said? Yeah. I mean, I would say first, you are not alone. I don't think that most of us go to bed at night and think, I really lived my values today. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because it's true. I don't think that our society encourages us to sit down and think about that. You know, most of what we are told and shown is marketing. It's people who want to separate us from our money one way or another. And so they are trying to put other things in our head, like all the different ways that we could project a better image or we could live more conveniently or, you know, all the different marketing messages you get. I know I don't need to remind anyone of that uh, because we're all surrounded by it. But, you know, I think that The idea of values is really important, but it's not one that we think about. And so I wanted to give folks a way to sort of process some of that. And so there are exercises in the book to help you think that through. And so we start very simply by saying, like, what are the issues in the world that get you most fired up? And I'm sure that anyone listening to your show is someone who cares a lot about the world. And so you probably have a long, long list. But I ask people to prioritize a little bit. And that's for two reasons. One, to help you get a sense of your values, but two, to help you sort of create like a mental tiebreaker because there will be cases where some of the different things that you care about might actually be in opposition to one another in terms of making a financial choice. So an example that I think is really simple to grasp is if you know that the most important issue to you is shrinking the racial wealth gap, then you're going to make very different choices than someone who's very focused first and foremost, on addressing the climate crisis. If you're a climate crisis person, you might be trying to reduce your um, environmental impact at every turn. You're trying not to drive a car. You're trying to eat as few animal products as possible. You're trying to just buy as little as you can, anything you need. You're trying to get it secondhand. And that is a very valid way to approach all of your choices, but it's not the only one. If you're focused on the wealth gap, then you're going to be looking more at how can you redistribute the financial power that you have to those who have less of it. And so that might be making an effort to shop at locally owned businesses owned by people of color. It might be really pushing the power that you have in the workplace to try to create better equity there and not just diversity in hiring, but also really pushing for inclusion efforts so that people can stick around and have better opportunities. So those are going to be a very different set of choices. And if you have a sense of what are your top priorities, it's going to help you simplify your decision making because I understand that once we start getting into this stuff, it's very easy to go to the store and go, oh my God, I can't buy anything. You know, I can't yeah. any choices. And I understand that paralysis. I think we've all been there. But my goal is to not paralyze you. It's to say, okay, let's make some choices. And and the analogy that I just love and I use all the time is the one of if you're a vegetarian and someone says, hey, do you want a burger? You do not have to waste any mental energy thinking about that question. You don't sit there and get paralyzed. You just go, nope, I don't eat burgers. And so if you can automate some of these choices for yourself and do sort of the values equivalent of vegetarianism, (laughs) Mm -hmm. 
it just, it really makes some of these decisions much more doable and much more actionable. And that's really my goal is like, let's not paralyze anybody. Let's try to get some some action steps we can all take. And that's going to look different for everybody based on your values, based on your financial resources, based on your interests. I mean, it's very, very much a customizable approach. Yeah. And I think as long as you have kind of guidelines in place for your behavior and what you want, obviously the vegetarian example is pretty easy to know what those guidelines are. But once you have those in place, there's less kind of emotional labor and thinking around what should I be doing or what is the right thing to do. And it helps you kind of just act out those values, I feel like. Totally. I, th- I think that's so well said. And it's we, we know we all have limited willpower. And I know that you're probably needing to use your willpower on like going to the gym or <laughs> getting the stressful work project done or doing that emotional labor in your family or home life that, that you need to do. So I'm not trying to put another drain on it. The goal of this is to sort of create this system so that it can almost like operate in the background for you and not take any emotional labor. Yeah, totally. And this is kind of off topic, but I wanted to just share this example because it's something I've talked about on this podcast. But, you know, I have stopped drinking and it was a decision that took me a long time to come to. And for a long time, I tried to moderate. And what I found was it is very difficult for me to moderate and to think of how many drinks can I have? What can I drink? How am I going to feel the next day? What schedule do I have tonight or tomorrow? And, you know, what is that going to be like? It's so much easier for me to just say, I don't drink than to entertain all of those questions. And then for me, consequences. <laughs> so, you know, I definitely feel you on the, like having the guidelines and the parameters of, of how you want to spend your, your money and then also your time and also on your values. And it just makes everything so much easier. And I definitely felt that in kind of my journey of trying to moderate drinking and then just realizing it's just so much easier for me to just opt out of that equation and to just say, I don't do it because it frees up so much mental and emotional labor on my brain and I can actually live on my values that are, I want to take care of my mental and physical health. And that does not include this particular substance. (laughs) I think that's a perfect analogy. And I also applaud you for doing that. I've been following your journey with that on social and I think it's really admirable. I'm glad that you've been talking about it. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's been a (laughs) a delicate, interesting journey, but glad to share and help others because I think, you know, there's a lot of focus on addicts or alcoholics, but there's so many more of us who are, quote, gray area drinkers where you might not be an alcoholic, but you might not have a healthy relationship with alcohol. And that's something to consider. And, you know, you don't have to hit, quote, rock bottom to get help or to want to stop something if it has a negative impact in your life. And I think that relates so much to, you know, what you talk about in your book, like things don't have to be so awful, but you can make changes that are more aligned with your values and what you want to do with your time and money. Totally. So I have always said that frugality has a cost. I know I've talked about this on social media that there's a cost, a human cost to frugality that we often don't think. And, you know, we go to the dollar store and we're like, oh my gosh, this is just a dollar. I'm so excited. Or I got this sale and this is great. And it feels like a win, but we don't really know the true cost. And in your book, I learned the term externalities, which that was like a really big light bulb moment for me because I was like, oh my gosh, I've been thinking about this topic for so long, but I didn't have the language. I didn't know what this meant. 
And now just the context around it just opened up so many things for me. So can you share what that is and how it impacts consumers and what they should consider when shopping for deals? Yeah, absolutely. So externality is a term that comes from economics. And it's the idea of any effects that come from a decision, usually a financial one, that aren't priced in. So I think the example that everyone can immediately understand is secondhand smoke. When a smoker buys a pack of cigarettes and they smoke it around whoever they smoke it around, their price that they're paying, it's very high now because of all the different taxes and fees that have been added on to try to dissuade people from smoking. But that price does not include the health care that may be required by people who breathe in that secondhand smoke. And so you can think of that like when you buy a manufactured product that comes out of a factory, the price that you're paying doesn't cover the price of cleaning up the pollution created by that factory or the healthcare needs of the workers who are harmed in the manufacturing process of making that thing. So there are all kinds of externalities that are built into our system. You know, with fossil fuels, they are unnaturally cheap. They are heavily subsidized by all different forms, you know, the government giving the fossil fuel companies cheap land leases to do exploration, all the different tax breaks that fossil fuel companies get. That's a huge one that we pay on basically everything or that we rather don't pay. Um, You know, all the food that we eat that's transported long distances, that's really only feasible price-wise because of the cheap cost of energy that's artificially cheap. So there are all kinds of externalities that are built in to just about everything, frankly, unless you are totally self-sufficient and off the grid, which is pretty rare. And even then, if you're off the grid, you're probably buying things like solar panels that were created with unnaturally cheap fossil fuels. <laughs> so there's there's really no way to escape those externalities, but it's important to think about them because usually a lot of those externalities are in fact human costs. So a big one that is very rarely talked about is exploited labor. So if you buy something that is made by people who are paid a sub-living wage, then you have essentially gotten something cheaper and you have benefited from someone else's sacrifice. And I think we recognize it's not usually an altruistic one. They're trying to get by and feed their family and they're just exploited by the lack of better opportunities, you know, wherever they live and the laws that don't protect them. Uh, often that's in countries like China, but but not always. Um, some of that is frankly here in the U.S. Made in the USA does not mean what it once did in terms of guaranteeing a living wage or good conditions for workers, which is why I think you now see this renewed push to unionize different workforces like Amazon just had a a union drive go through in New York State, which is wonderful. I'm sure Amazon's not happy about it, but but it's better for the workers. Uh, And so there are just a lot of different things in there. And so I encourage readers to think about that and to consider that for the products, especially that you buy, but also for food and um, things like if you move into an apartment in a neighborhood that's, quote, hip or up and coming, you know, often the externality there is the effect of gentrification and the displacement of someone who's most likely lower income than you and probably has fewer opportunities to move somewhere else. And they might be forced way, way outside the city. And now they have to take on huge transit costs because they can't afford to live any closer. And so those are things that are really built into so many of the choices that we make, but they're made invisible to us. And so I think the more that we start to recognize them, the more we can make different choices because we understand, oh, this is not just this thing. This comes with a whole cascade of effects that aren't priced in that, frankly, I don't want to be a part of. Uh, 
and I, I'm saying I in the the greater sense that I think a lot of us don't want to be a part of. And so it's really just a matter of opening our eyes and understanding the system that we're in and its impact on on people and the planet and the climate and all those things so that we can make different choices. Yeah, I really loved your book because it really just kind of took the curtain away from all of these things. I mean, as you said, so many of this stuff becomes invisible and we're just, you know, consuming the final product. We don't have to think about how long it took to get transported here. We don't have to think about the labor that went behind it. We don't have to think about the humans that produced it. We just get to pick up a product and enjoy our day without thinking of that. And, you know, in the book, uh, you brought to light so many different issues. And I loved you the way you did it because it was without shaming. Like, you came for my Starbucks. You came for my notebooks. <laughs> you came for the dollar store. I was like, I'm feeling attacked, but in the best way possible. <laughs> I hate this, but I love this. And I kept reading and I was like, okay. I need to think about my choices. I really do. And I, 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 like I said, I love that because I think I will make different choices and vote differently with my dollars. And so why are some of these things problematic and what should people think about? It, yeah, it's so funny. I I don't feel like I came. I probably came for the dollar store um, because yeah. <laughs> there's just essentially no way that things can be priced at those low prices and be produced in a way that is paying anyone a living wage, um, that's paying the cashier you're buying from a living wage, that's that's done in an environmentally sensitive way. Um, there's just essentially no way. Now, that said, for people who can't afford anything but the dollar store, they're, you know, you have to do what you have to do. And my goal is not to shame anybody for that because we live in the economy we live in that's super reliant on underpaying workers. And so that includes a lot of people who want to do good with their money. The thing is, like, every choice we make is going to likely have some problems. And I think it's important to know that and to recognize that. So with Starbucks, the critique that I made was really more that they've been trying to get ahead of this straw ban trend that's been going everywhere, where a lot of different places are banning plastic straws because there was a video a few years ago of a straw stuck in the nose of a sea turtle and it got a ton of views and everyone got really upset. And now a lot of places are trying to ban plastic straws. The problem is that a lot of disabled people need plastic straws and none of the alternatives really work for them for a whole bunch of different reasons. And so I think in the straw ban frenzy, we've forgotten about the needs of our fellow humans. And moreover, straws actually represent a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of the plastic in the ocean. And bigger things are plastic fishing nets, which are like 40% of the plastic in the ocean. And we're doing very little about them. And you don't see the same kind of uproar about them. And so to me, the idea of banning plastic straws is largely performative. But so that aside, Starbucks, to try to get ahead of that, put in a new lid, which you've maybe seen if you've gotten like the cold beverages at Starbucks. It looks like a sippy cup lid. Yeah. And so it's like, okay, good solution. That works for some people. Um, not a lot of folks with disabilities, but that lid with the sippy cup actually has more plastic in it than the old lid and straw combined. And so <laughs> that's just a great example of like the kinds of things that we're doing to try to bow to marketing and bow to social trends that are actually worse in the long run. You know, is it good that Starbucks is using more plastic now? No. That said, if you take your own cup, no worries. Starbucks is is one of the better companies out there <laughs> that you could be getting your coffee from. So no worries. Um, but 
you know, I think that there are just a lot of issues that are made invisible to us and and companies that are really trying to prey on our wants and desires and show themselves to be virtuous in different ways or serving us in different ways without really doing good in the world. And I'm sorry, I feel that I have lost the thread of your question. <laughs> no, I, I I brought up a lot of different things. I talked about you came for so many things. You definitely addressed the Starbucks and the dollar store. And the other thing I mentioned was notebooks. And you just blew my mind with, you know, how recycled paper cannot be as great as we think it is, and then how long it takes the coils and then the transportation. If you could just share a little bit about that. So in the book, I gave the example of a spiral notebook, not to come for notebooks or say that no one is allowed to buy them. I am a stationary person. That is definitely my splurge area. I am sitting here looking at a bunch of notebooks. Um, but I gave the example of a spiral notebook because it's something that almost everyone has used. It's pretty simple. It doesn't seem like it's complex. And I walked through the entire process of that going from raw materials to a notebook in your hands to show just how complex it is, even for something that's incredibly simple. You know, I could have done like a pair of headphones and we look at all the rare earth minerals that are in it and all the different components that go into it. And that would have been really complicated. But my point was to show even for the simplest things we buy, it's an incredibly complex process. And there are a lot of different points in the process when exploitation can happen, whether that's exploitation of people or exploitation of the earth's resources. And yeah, that that paper is recycled a lot less than we think. And part of that is just the inherent nature of wood fibers and how much they break down each time you make paper. So even newsprint, what newspaper comes printed on, is at most 50% recycled content. So the idea of anything being 100% recycled is with paper just generally not possible, unlike with glass or aluminum or steel, like in food cans, which we usually call tin cans, that's steel. Um, those things are very heavily recycled. And so that's great. But with notebooks, for example, you know, the goal isn't to say, don't buy notebooks, notebooks are bad. The goal is to say, let's be conscious of how much goes into essentially everything we buy so that we can just be a lot less casual about it. We can understand, okay, this thing I'm about to buy went through a lot of different hands. Were all those people paid fairly? Probably not. It was transported a long way. You know, is that a ton of fossil fuel that went into bringing this thing to me? Probably. And that just, I think, helps us calibrate a little bit better our consumption because it's gotten so easy, especially with cheap stuff, stuff online, dollar stores, you know, all those things to just go, oh, yeah, okay, I'm just going to buy some things and, and not give it any thought. And I think once we understand how much labor, how much energy, how many resources go into even the most basic things, then we can just be a lot more mindful about how much of them we consume or buy. And that's really what I think we all need. You know, the the reality is if we're going to address climate change, we are quickly running out of time to do so. But we are just, most of us are going to have to consume a lot less. And if you earn only $20,000 a year in the U.S., which we all know is very, very little, not enough to get by in any cities, you're still in the top 10% of all earners in the world. And climate change is really a problem that has been caused by wealthy people. And unfortunately, basically everyone in the U.S. counts as globally wealthy. So that's not to say people earning $20,000 a year are the ones creating this problem. It's obviously the people who earn a lot more than that. But for most of us, it means consuming less one way or another. So understanding the process, I think, is just a good way to do that. It's sort of like um, 
Paul McCartney's quote that if the meat processing plants all had glass walls, we would all be vegetarians. You know, if you saw what went into making your food, it's like a similar idea for if we understand what goes into making our products, I think we would take them for granted a lot less and consume them much less casually. So, you know, and another way too, if you love notebooks is just buy ones without the spiral because if you just have the paper and not the metal, it it suddenly becomes a lot less impactful. And use those notebooks. Don't do what some of us do and hoard notebooks and not use them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. And just FYI for the listeners, when I said she came for the Starbucks, the notebooks, and the Dollar Tree, that was added for humor effect. I mean, <laughs> it, was, it was very, you know, a, a beautiful presentation of you can have these things, but just know where they're coming from. And I think you really kind of illustrated your original point of that you know, we should be more conscious consumers and it's not that we can't ever go to Starbucks or buy another notebook or go to the Dollar Tree, but that we should be conscious about what are the means of production? How did this get here? What are the externalities that we should think about in that? And also, like, as you said, we need to be consuming less as part of climate change, because I think, I mean, we've all had this experience where we buy something, we're super excited about it for about 72 hours, and then it sits <laughs> on our shelves for years. And then, you know, three years later, when we have to move, we're like, oh, I need to sell this because I haven't used it. And it's more effort later on. And you're doing the emotional labor of trying to sell it and trying to get rid of it or recycle it. And it's like, what if we just didn't buy that in the first place? So also kind of checking in on your emotions and your mental health. And we've also talked about that in the podcast that Sometimes people shop as a way to cope with their mental health because it's a great dopamine hit. It's fun. Mm -hmm. It feels safer than some of the other options out there. And we can be cognizant of, of how our mental health and our emotional state might be impacting our purchases as well. Yeah, very well said. Hey there. Thanks so much for listening to the Mental Health and Wealth Show. I wanted you to pause real quick and take a mindful minute. Close your eyes. And take a deep breath and exhale. Take a deep breath again and exhale. Taking a moment for yourself is so important for your mental health. Now, before we get back to the show, I just wanted to say, if you are enjoying this episode, please review the podcast and share it on social media and tag me at Melanie Lockhart and share your thoughts. It'll really help spread the word about the show and help others with their money and mental health. You can also support this independent podcast and buy me a coffee at ko-fi.com forward slash Melanie Lockhart. Perfect. So you also mentioned a little bit earlier kind of how companies really want to be seen in this light that they're doing good, that they're helping out the environment. And I believe this is what is called greenwashing. Can you share a little bit more about that term and kind of what we can look out for with companies that may or may not be engaged in those practices? Yeah, I mean, the I'm sure folks have mostly heard that term. Greenwashing is the idea of trying to make something, whether that's a company or it's a product, um, seem 
more environmentally friendly than it is. And this happens in basically every single realm. You know, if you look at um, new construction of homes, which is something that's incredibly resource intensive, they'll all be touting, oh, we're green certified this and look how energy efficient it is without addressing the fact that building a new home is inherently just a huge use of energy (laughs) and resources. Or I'm sure everyone can think of different products that have been touted as more green and people have all kinds of different ways they they define this. And sometimes they'll literally just make the package the color green to try to get you to associate it with environmental friendliness in some way. Um, but it happens every day. You're subjected to it constantly. And it's all in an effort to separate you from your money. And I think it's important to recognize that, that everyone who does this stuff is trying to sell you something. So many of the messages you receive are people trying to sell you things. And I think once you recognize that, again, it becomes easier to say, oh, no, this is just marketing. I don't actually need this thing. Or, you know, I I love to use the example of the stainless steel water bottle because that comes with a lot of eco chic kind of cred. If you carry around your steel water bottle, then look at you, you're environmentally conscious and not buying plastic water bottles. And yes, not buying plastic water bottles is a really, really good thing. However, we aren't looking at the environmental impact of mining iron, turning it into steel, turning that steel into stainless steel, turning those into bottles that then can't be recycled, usually because they have paint on the outside or they're a non-standard size. Um, But basically anything that's painted metal is going to be really, really hard to recycle. So just keep that in mind. Um, but so we've we've shifted to this world where like we all probably had perfectly good water bottles sitting around at home, but we've started buying these expensive stainless steel ones because that became cool. That became eco-cred, similar to, you know, 10 years ago, everyone buying a Prius because <laughs> that was yeah. uh, the environmentally friendly thing to do without looking at the energy impact of making a hybrid battery or looking at the lifespan of some of the materials that go into hybrid cars. And it's not to say that those things are inherently bad, but just to say that we're talking about them the wrong way. We're looking at the wrong parts of it. And that's a deliberate effort on the part of marketers to to shift our attention, to try to get us to focus on what is the thing I need to buy to be good? What is the thing I need to buy to be virtuous, you know, to do less harm when really the question should be, do I need to buy anything at all? Might the things I already have be better? And I think shifting to that conversation is not only needed from a planetary resources perspective, but it's also much more inclusive because one of the things that frustrates me the most about efforts to be environmentally better are that they tend to really focus on people who have a lot of financial resources. You know, we've had this focus for years that Like you have to be able to afford to buy Patagonia clothes to be uh, ethical or environmentally conscious. And those are really expensive and and also not perfect. You know, Patagonia has been tied to forced labor in Xinjiang province along with so many different manufacturers. And so this idea that you have to be rich to make good choices, I think is just is truly, truly false. In fact, people who are lower income are often making the better choices by default just because buying less stuff is environmentally better. Buying secondhand things is environmentally better and better, frankly, for you know, not relying on exploited labor. And so let's change that conversation. Let's make it about, do we need to buy anything at all? Or maybe there are alternatives. We could share something, rent something, um, some of those different options so that it's both good for the planet, good for other people and good for your own finances. Yeah. It's like a win, win, win. I love that question. Do we need to buy anything? Because I think it's also really important to realize that marketers are 
spending lots and lots of money to try to manipulate your consciousness and your behavior into doing what they want you to do, which is to buy something. Mm -hmm. And so we are kind of, you know, part of their game and we can choose to opt out or play in a different way. And taking some of that agency and power back is really important. And I love, you know, kind of your framework with starting with this question. Yeah, great. So I want to ask you a personal question. Sure. <laughs> this, is, this is silly. I mean, personal as in uh, it's personally from me, not like something that's great <laughs> for the podcast. Uh, but I've always thought about this, and this is relevant to your book and everything that you talk about. So if we're trying to make different choices, so let's say I'm using the bathroom and I see that there are paper towels and I think to myself, I shouldn't use paper towels in the bathroom because that's a waste. But then I think they're already created. So why not? What is the right way to go about that? And if people choose not to use them, what impact does that have on a larger scale? Because I've always wondered this, like I've literally been thinking about this exact topic for like 10 years and I don't really know the answer, but I think you might. So I'm curious. Yeah. So I definitely understand that conflict. And I think if you're in a situation where it's a one-off event, for example, and like, let's say that you're someone who occasionally eats meat, but you try to um, not eat it very often and you mostly eat vegetarian and you go to a party and they're serving burgers and you think, well, I'm not trying to eat meat, but you also know if I don't eat it, it might go to waste. In that situation, I think, yes, the sunk cost idea, you know, this thing is already produced. It's already here. I think that's totally fine. But if you're talking about like you're out shopping and you go to the the public restroom at the store and there are paper towels there, in that kind of instance, the right way to think about it, and this is not to say you can't use the paper towels because we also know that if you don't dry your hands, that's actually when germs are spread the most, that that drying your hands well is important. And we also know that a lot of the hand dryers on the wall use a ton of energy and like blow bathroom germs around. <laughs> and so yeah, it's you so might, gross. It, exactly. It's super gross. And so, you know, honestly, I would say it's fine to use a paper towel, but just try to use as little as you can, you know, get the most out of one instead of using three or what I see people do all the time and take like two feet of paper towel and wipe it for <laughs> half a second and throw it away mostly still dry. Like, don't do that. But in general, the idea of consuming something or using something, the way that I like to think about it is to think about what you are creating demand for. So if you are going and buying something or using something that's already existing, you're sending a signal to whoever makes the purchasing decisions for that entity that you want more of that thing, that they should buy more of that thing. And so that's, I think, just a good way to go about your choices of anytime you buy something or use something except in those rare instances where it's like a one-off event, um, you're sending a signal that you want more of that thing. You're creating more demand for it. And so I think of that as just a really helpful framework. And that's how I think about it too, because you could easily just go through life and think, well, it's already produced. Shouldn't I just use it up so it doesn't go to waste? Like, well, <laughs> maybe. Uh, but that I think is is more of a way to excuse choices that maybe we shouldn't actually make because they don't align to our values. Um, but yeah, paper towels, I would say don't don't stress about them too much. But, you know, if you can, you know, like in Japan, it's very common for people to carry around a small um, cloth in their bag. And so when I Ooh. visited Japan in 2017, I learned about that in advance. And so I put a little travel towel in my backpack and I've just carried it ever since. And so 
most of the time when I have my bag with me, then I can just use the towel in my bag. Um, but you know, if you can't do that or, you know, you're not carrying something with you, I don't stress about the little paper towel things of, of all the things I know people stress about cutting down trees, but trees grow back and trees are managed as a sustainable crop in most cases. So of all the types of resources you could use, paper is generally the least bad. Oh, good to know. I feel better. And I love that tip about the little rag. That is so helpful because I'm always like perplexed when I go to a public bathroom. I'm like, I'm grossed out by the air dryer, but I don't want to waste the trees. Mm -hmm. What do I do? Do I wipe it on my pants? That feels weird too. So (laughs) that's actually a really great tip. I'm just going to get a little rag and just keep it with me in my purse. That's fantastic. So I know you touched a little bit on this earlier. You mentioned, you know, how certain consumer choices like buying certain food or living in a certain area can impact indigenous people or people of color. What should white people consider when making choices and working toward being an ally for others? There are a lot of things uh, that can be impacted. And so I I definitely encourage folks to, to look at the book, but also to look for other sources. You know, it, it, it can be very community specific. And so it's worth doing some research in your area to see, okay, what are advocates um, who are people of color or indigenous folks saying, you know, like we've we've been hearing for pretty much the whole pandemic, um, Native Hawaiians asking people not to visit from the mainland. And so I think it's just important to look at, you know, if there's a place you're looking at traveling or the place where you live, to be aware of what issues people are raising because so much of it is, is locality specific. But I think that there are some general things that apply everywhere. So thinking about where you live, for example, gentrification is happening everywhere. And gentrification is is an interesting topic because I think we talk about it like it's for sure bad. And it's also one of those things, it's like when you sit in traffic complaining about the traffic, even though you are the traffic, a lot of folks who complain about gentrification are the gentrifiers, which is an interesting phenomenon. And so it's it's maybe worth doing some self-reflection. But really what we're talking about when we talk about gentrification is that a neighborhood becomes more expensive. People are getting displaced, whether that's people who live in apartments that are now, you know, suddenly the rent is getting jacked up or the building is turning into condos or the houses are getting knocked down by eminent domain by a city so that they can build new, you know, hip condos. Um, Or the businesses aren't able to afford rent anymore because the chains have all come in and now everyone's going to Trader Joe's and Starbucks instead of the local mom and pop shop. And so it's worth thinking about what your impact on that might be. And so it might be questioning whether you should be moving into an area. It might be making an effort to shop at the locally owned businesses that predated all of the gentrification. You know, the hard thing is that In most cases, we tend to have this binary where either an area gets gentrified or it gets totally disinvested and there's no money going in and it just goes into greater and greater poverty. The businesses fail because people don't have money to spend. And so we unfortunately haven't generally found a very good balance. There are some promising things happening, like in the Anacostia neighborhood in Washington, D.C. that I wrote about in the book. But outside of that, it tends to be either disinvestment or gentrification. So it's not to say don't go into any neighborhoods, but think about how you can spend your money more wisely and how you can also amplify the efforts of existing community groups. So what tends to happen often in neighborhoods that shift demographically is that a lot of the new white residents who move in will form some new community group and start agitating for changes. And they'll just completely shout over 
the groups that have existed for decades that have been asking for things but have largely been ignored. So I think to the extent that you can go work with existing groups and not just work and go in and try to take over, but like go and listen or use your privilege if you have it to amplify their voices rather than speaking for them. Those are things that that you can do that I think are really impactful potentially. Um, but beyond that, I think it's it's really listening to understand what the issues are in your community. You know, like it's, it's going to be different everywhere. Where I live in Lake Tahoe, California, we're more of a resort community, um, for lack of a better word, which is funny because most people who live here are very working class. But a lot of people who come visit and the basis of the economy is, is vacationing, whether it's for skiing or to go to the lake in the summer. And what that's done is it's convinced a lot of people who used to rent homes or apartments out as long-term rentals, you know, to be someone's home, to just be like a normal rental apartment. They've now converted those to short-term rentals like Airbnb or Verbo. And that means that we have very little housing stock and it's caused a major housing affordability crisis. And that's something that has happened in a lot of different communities around the world. And so if you're looking to travel somewhere, you might search whether, okay, if I punch in this location and housing affordability crisis, does anything come up? And if it does, then you might say, okay, well, then I'm going to make an effort to either stay in a hotel or only go in the off-peak season, or maybe I will skip that place altogether because I don't want to contribute to that problem. Those are things that you can do and just get in a habit of searching for before you book a trip that can really have a positive impact as well. So there, there's a lot really that all of us can do. And in terms of Indigenous folks specifically, if you own your home, you can also write into your will to give your property back to the tribe from whom the land was stolen when you die. And that's part of the land back movement of trying to get people to give their land back to the tribes. So that's another thing you can do as well if you're if you're fortunate enough to be able to own. So it's it's really an endless array of choices and truly with everything that's in the book and there's so much in there not everyone or I mean no one actually can do everything that's in there. Um, I'm certainly not doing everything that's in there. And my goal is to give you this big range of choices so that you can figure out what works for you. And maybe you start small with just one or two things and you build on them over time. I think that's very much the intent. It's not to say, you know, if you can't do all this stuff, you're a bad person or anything like that. Love that. Thank you so much for sharing. And I think you've given us so much to think about. Um, I did want to talk to you about ESG investing. So, you know, if people want to build wealth and use their money to save for the future, but also be kind of responsible with their money and support causes that they think are important, what should they think about with ESG investing and what is that exactly? Yeah, ESG stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance. And it's really the umbrella catchphrase for any sort of investment that is supposed to be a little bit better in terms of how the companies treat people, how they treat the environment. The problem is it's not a regulated term yet. The SEC in the U.S. is looking at rules to regulate it, and the EU is as well, and some other countries. So progress is happening there, but there are still problems with it. So oftentimes, company, you know, the, the problem with all the stuff we're talking about, the greenwashing, all of it, is that companies know that consumers care about the environment and care about exploitation of people and they want to avoid it. And that's why greenwashing happens. And so 
that likewise happens with investments that companies say, okay, how can we appear more environmentally friendly than we are so that we can be included in this ESG index so that we can sell more shares, our share price will go up, our shareholders will be happy, we who own shares will all get richer. And so absolutely every company has an incentive to get a good ESG rating. So I think it's important to recognize that, to know that therefore it's not a pure system, it's not a, a you know fix-all or a cure-all. If you have very few options and you just want to make this quick and easy, certainly investing in an ESG index fund is usually better than investing in a general index fund. Just be careful with the fees because sometimes the fees are a lot higher because they're trying to take advantage of people's good intentions and you don't want to be that sucker. So watch out for that. But, you know, I think that the idea that, okay, if you invest in ESG funds, now you're an impact investor and you don't need to do anything else. I think that's the part where I would really encourage folks to look beyond that, to say, okay, ESG is a starting point. It's not the end point of what we should all be doing. Because, you know, for example, something I I recently wrote about for MarketWatch is some of the problems with ESG. We've seen instances where companies who used to own coal mines, for example, because um, that was profitable and they use some of that coal to run their factories because a lot of industrial processes have to be powered by coal, you know, or really high power output things like anything involving metal basically has to be run on coal. It doesn't, you know, it can't run on solar, unfortunately. And so companies would own these coal mines, but they realized, oh, those are keeping us from having a good ESG rating. So they dump the coal mines. Well, guess what? Those coal mines are just getting bought up by private equity funds. And the same goes for companies who are unloading some of their other assets that are fossil fuel related. They're just getting snapped up. So we're not seeing that now suddenly there's all this pressure to get off coal. We're just seeing who owns the coal mines shift or who's using that energy shift. And it's it's really a shell game. It's not fundamentally changing the landscape. So again, ESG is better than nothing, but I think if you're able, you know, if you can be an activist shareholder, for example, and and use the fact that you own shares of bad guy companies to push for change, that's been really effective lately. Like Chevron recently had some um, more renewable focused directors forced onto its board by angry shareholders. That's really, really good. There are so many different things that you can do in the investing realm. But also, I think more importantly, especially if you care about fossil fuels, before you worry too much about your investments, focus on where you're banking. Because if you bank with one of the big corporate banks, there is a very excellent chance that the money that's sitting in your savings account is being lent out to fund new fossil fuel projects. And so simply by leaving a Chase or a Bank of America or Wells Fargo and going to your local credit union or a Black-owned bank or any any different model bank, you can withhold that funding. And especially if you tell them why you're leaving on your way out, you help them see that, oh, lending to fossil fuels is bad business. And if enough of us do that, it will absolutely have an impact. And so I think this idea that you have to have a bunch of money to invest to make a difference is just really not true because most of us have a bank. If you have a bank and you bank with a big one and you move, that's an incredibly powerful act and it's a pain, but you do it one time and then it's done forever. I love that. And that's actually a great segue for my final question. So you already kind of touched on a little bit, but you know, what can people do if they don't have a lot of financial resources? How can they still be a conscious and empowered consumer? And, you know, maybe they can't actually use their money to do other things to support causes, but what can they do in general? Yeah, I think first is knowing that anytime you can spend 
less and buy less, that that is an incredibly powerful act. And so feel really assured that that's good. And I know that, you know, most of us can afford to buy less. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. That's very accessible. Uh, I think changing where you bank again, you know, is a really powerful act and a good one to, to think about. And then being an ally to people at work is something that we don't talk enough about, you know, whatever your workplace is. And one of the things that I love about this moment, you know, I, I think we all recognize times are terrible. <laughs> you know, everything, yeah. The world is ending. Um, Crisis but, every day. Yeah. But one of the, the few, you know, glimmers of hope out there is this big push toward unionization that's happening at factories and warehouses and companies all over the country in all kinds of different industries. And they show that the lowest level workers, those who don't feel they have any power to speak up, those who can't, you know, bend the ear of a manager and make something happen, they still have incredible power because you can still get your coworkers together and push to whether it's full unionization or it's just banding together so that you have strength in numbers to go to management and demand some kind of change. That's something that anyone at any level can be a part of. And so I think that, you know, that's not something we talk about enough. And frankly, that's on purpose because big companies don't want us to feel powerful. They don't want us to push for collective bargaining or power in numbers. And so, yeah, using that power at work is absolutely overlooked bit of power that we all have. Oh, that is such a great tip. And yeah, I love that you brought that up because, you know, we're definitely in a unique moment with the the great resignation, the great reshuffle, whatever you want to call it. I mean, so many people are getting really sick of workplace environments. It's standing up to conditions and saying, this is not what we want and this is not what we deserve. And we've seen that power in real time. And I, I love that. Yeah. Is there anything else you would like to share and end the podcast with? Oh, you know, I think the biggest frustration that I have that I see a lot, and I'm sure folks will relate to this, is I'll see things that are like, okay, here I am recycling my little bottles and cans, and meanwhile, 100 companies are responsible for 70% of global emissions. And sort of this idea that, that keeps popping up again and again in the popular culture that we don't matter, you know, that our choices don't make a difference. I get the frustration at the the few companies that are doing all the emitting, and that's that anger is absolutely well-placed, and we need to be doing a better job of holding them accountable. But we also need to recognize that we are their funders. You know, when we go and fill up the gas tank in our car, that is funding those fossil fuel companies and encouraging them to go drill for more oil. When we shop at a retailer, it is, you know, putting money in the pockets of these companies doing all the polluting or the exploitation of people. And so rather than look at it as a, why do we care what I'm doing because I'm just one drop in the ocean and these companies are the ocean, let's look at it as attacking our big problems from all sides of let's contribute to those things as little as we can individually. Let's use our money for better purposes. And, you know, this is an ongoing debate that I think sometimes happens of like, should we be trying to reform the system incrementally or should we burn the system down? It's like, in fact, to make change, we need people arguing for both. And likewise, to make change, we need to hold corporations accountable and push government to enact stronger policies, but we also need to change our individual habits. And so I think 
cutting out this dichotomy of like, is it individual or is it policy? Like, no, it's both. <laughs> I think is just really important. And frankly, bringing more nuance into all of our conversations can only benefit all of us because just thinking in this black or white way, thinking that everything is a binary is frankly, a huge part of why we're in such a problematic place in our discourse. And so let's understand that we all have a role to play and we need to put pressure on the big guys at the same time. It's not either or. Ooh, I love that. That was so well said and such a great perspective shift because, yeah, I think it really is easy to get lost in despair and think nothing I do matters. But then, yeah, exactly to your point, we need change and support from all sides and we need to do our part. And that is making a difference in whatever small way and that we can advocate for bigger change as well. Mm -hmm. So where can people find you and buy your book? You can buy the book in all the book places. I am putting a special request with this book for folks who are interested in buying it to, you know, maybe try to avoid the big everything store if you can <laughs> yeah. and either get it at your local bookstore or get it from bookshop.org or you can get it on IndieBound and they'll often connect you to your local bookstore or you can order from them directly. Um, of course, it's it's available in ebook and audiobook as well if you're interested. And, you know, if you do have to buy from the evil empire, uh, no shame. Uh, but if, if you do that, I'd ask if you don't mind leaving a review. That's so helpful. Um, and just frankly, a, a, for all authors, if you can leave reviews on their books, um, it's, yes. it goes <laughs> such a long way and it really, really helps. It makes the books look more legit. Uh, it does all the good things. It makes your hair shiny, you know. <laughs> it's free. It's free. It's a way to support without spending extra money. Yeah, absolutely. So all the book places for wallet activism. And then you can find me on my very occasional these days blog, ournextlife.com. And I'm most active on social on Twitter and Instagram. And my handle on both of those is at our underscore next life, uh, which is really inconvenient. But you can also just search for my name, Tanya, T-A-N-J-A Hester, and you'll find me. Perfect. Thank you so much for this lovely and amazing conversation. It was so wonderful to catch up with you and to talk about your amazing book. I hope everyone checks it out. And thank you so much for sharing your time. Oh, this was such a pleasure to chat with you. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to the Mental Health and Wealth Show. Want more content and support? Sign up for the Mental Hump newsletter and get our free mental health and money inventory worksheet. You can sign up at mentalhealthandwealth.com and also check out our other blog posts and podcast episodes. Also, we host a mental health and wealth hangout every other Thursday over Zoom at 5 p.m. Pacific to chat about all things money and mental health. If you'd like to support the podcast, it would mean so much to me if you left a review. And you can also support me at ko-fi.com forward slash Melanie Lockhart. And lastly, I want to remind you to do something for yourself to take care of your mental health and wealth.